Welcome, everybody, to Kremlin File. Hello, Ruth. How are you? Ruth Ben-Giat. Ruth, you've been on national networks and you have your own, okay, column in CNN, which I'm an avid reader, okay, of, and also, know your own publication uh, called Lucid as well on Substack. Everybody's got to pick this up. Okay, this is Ruth's fantastic, fantastic, okay, book. So you're one of the first people that actually touched on Trump and voiced, okay, uh, this concern, okay, about him and the kind of person, okay, he, you know, he is. What actually triggered you to get going and be so vocal about it? Okay, because Olga was there too, as well. Uh, the two of you, okay, were shining lights at that time. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and, and um, it's it's very interesting to see who, who had the skill set and experiences to understand very early um, the threat represented by Trump, not just domestically, but internationally too. And so you had people who had you know had experience with uh, autocratic regimes or had studied them um and and I came to this from studying fascism and its legacies and so when I saw Trump start to retweet um neo-nazi propaganda this is 2015 he started to have rallies that's when I realized there could be this kind of xenophobic nationalist and worse um you know, uh, he he would be setting off something that 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 would lead to huge consequences. And I also felt uh, quite early on that seeing him only through the lens of American history was not going to be sufficient. That and so what what my contribution has been is to turn the lens of kind of global autocracy and say to people, you know, he's he's not going to act. And I predicted much of what he did. Um, you know, he's not going to act like any president, Republican or Democrat we've ever had because he comes from an autocratic framework. And and I, I also realized early that his, and this is very scary, his goal was not just to destroy American democracy, but really to take uh, America out of the democratic world order and insert it into something that's forming new and that's where his Putin ties come in, his Russian ties. And so I think I don't remember what year it was. It might have been 2017. I started talking about like, you know, a little bit cheekily Axis 2.0. Um and and now look look where we are. Uh so th those were the yeah. yeah, those were the things, the leader cults, propaganda and just this idea you have to use a different frame to look at him to fully understand the the damage uh, actually i'm going to ask this question to both of you okay uh ruth how would you categorize him do you see him more as a mussolini do you see him um i don't know as a pinochet like what what how do you categorize this guy and and olga i want you to answer that as well okay you know um so because I, you know, wrote books on fascism and people get impatient with me because I'm not I'm not just using only the F word or I won't use the F word just to describe Trump, um, although he does many fascist things. The reason I wrote Strongman as a kind of history of 100 years of authoritarianism is to show what happened to all of these things that fascism and, and communism created. And so, you know, 
really it's and if we even just look at what Trump did, the menu he took from after he lost the election in those very damaging months after November 2020, he's really taking from uh, not just fascism and but also military coups. A lot of what's going on now is related to the right wing authoritarian playbook of the Cold War and you, many things similar to Chile before the 1973 coup. And then he's also an Olga, you know, knows this well. He's also inserted in this newer kind of 21st century autocrat and they sustain themselves with illicit money. And Trump is in as a money launderer. Trump's like the on the supply side of, you know, having these flows of money through his real estate that um, actually support these autocrats. So just to call him a fascist doesn't actually it doesn't actually cover the whole scope of what the danger is. Yeah. 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 Well, with me, I think, um, you know, I view him more closer to Putin. I saw right away, you know, him attempting, like, just even in 2016, using the KGB playbook of dividing the country, working on emotions, you know, targeting people specifically. Where I think I differ a drop, I think he is using a fascist playbook, but where I differ a drop is there, he doesn't have the ideology behind it, just like Putin doesn't. Putin will capitalize off of anything to keep power. So I think with that, I mean, and he wanted to install more of this corrupt model that is in Russia, where you silence anyone who, you know, has op- uh, is opposed to the regime. You jail anyone who, you know, is investigating corruption. You make sure, and at the same time, you line your inner circle with people who are willing to, you know, uh, do all the corrupt deals. And, like, basically, like, he wanted to, like, bring that oligarch system here where if people are loyal to him, they will get good business deals. So it goes a step further because of this, you know, corrupt model that he wanted to institute and he's obsessed with Russia. I mean, he is obsessed with Putin and Putin is a mafia thug. There is, I mean, you know, it kills me that people say he has a strategy and, you know, he's this, he's not, he took over the country. He's a mafia thug who took over the country, hijacked the institutions that were already at the time struggling after the collapse of the Soviet Union and basically kicked everyone out, put all his inner circles to run them, and that's it. And he will align with the far left, with the far right. I mean, whatever it is he needs to do, he will. And that's that. Even with the communists, like, you know, they did not, they isolated, for instance, Jews. Putin right away saw that, you know, I can make use of working with Jews in the early 90s. And he aligned himself with Jews, and it was actually probably the first Russian leader who did so. They tap on, you know, that whole Nazi ideology because they see them as a means of, you know, carrying out their path to power. Uh, We know with all authoritarians, um, the first thing they do is they need to control the information space. And we saw Trump when he came to power, uh, well, even during the campaigns, how he started assembling these very, very, very dangerous rallies. And then we saw how he immediately attacked truth 
attacked media. I mean, put everybody in dangerous situations. I will never forget, like, how he had a room full of tens of thousands of people, and then he would turn around and say, that is fake news. They're the enemy. And you have these poor reporters, like, huddled in, like, a little, you know, corner at being, like, you know, the target. And we saw what happened after. Can you talk about that? Why is it so important for authoritarians to control the information space? Yeah, and one of the things I, I learned doing the research for Strongman is that they, you know, they start using these autocratic tools before they get to power. In fact, it helps them get to power. So one of the first, if you want to say, well, okay, here's somebody on the horizon. Are they, you know, are they going to tend to be a strongman? You have to look for them to start um, debasing and attacking the press. And the reason they do that is both to, because um, they aim at creating an alternate reality that suits them, that suits their purposes, their financial purposes, et cetera. But the other thing is that um, a lot of these strongmen are, as, as Olga said, they're thugs, they're criminals. And either they already have a criminal record, like Mussolini and Hitler, or they come to power and they're under investigation. Um, Putin, Trump, Berlusconi. So it's like an insurance yeah. policy for them to attack the press because they're all corrupt. They know their crimes. And so when they get to power, if, if things start to come out or even before they have to, uh, the public has to already believe that the press is partisan hacks, that the press is the enemy. So it's like an insurance policy for them to do that. And, and so what Trump did that was um, new and, and the right wing, you know, talk radio, et cetera, had been, criticizing mainstream media for a long time. But what Trump did, um, which was, you know, very frightening and Olga described at the rallies, um, was add to the roster of enemies of the state, which like plenty of Americans didn't like people of color. They didn't like migrants. So they didn't like Jews and Muslims, etc. But he made the press a political enemy, not just this kind of existing right-wing skepticism with the media, but he made them a political enemy. And that's what the ritual, the rallies were very, very important with all kinds of rituals inciting violence, um, getting people to turn on them. So that was yeah, something he did. Ask you about the so that's a good example yeah. of how you can't, you can't see him like George Bush wasn't doing, you know, Reagan didn't do this. And of course, Nixon did some of these things, yeah. uh, but, but it was targeted to a certain period of Watergate. Um, and so you have to really um, go outside of America to understand uh, the frame for this. It's, like, it's what Duterte does, it's what Bolsonaro does, and of course it's what Putin does. So that's part of it. And then you, you use information warfare, and Trump is really one of the most skilled propagandists of the 21st century, he is. And he surrounded himself, you know this well, by with very frightening people who have decades of experience, like Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, you know, Bannon is a, is a superb propagandist. Um, and, and so he had the accumulated wisdom as well as his own marketing skills um, and communication skills and TV. So we, we know, like the democratic press here and, and Americans didn't, they had no they had no experience with this and they couldn't react properly 
Um, you have to nip this in the bud when it starts and nobody had the skills to recognize it hardly. Yeah, yeah. You're reminding me of, um, you remind me of also Berlusconi when he hit the, uh, let's say with his televisions and his television channels and the way that he would address, you know, uh, with a very new kind of rhetoric that it hit. And you're absolutely right. They weren't even ready for that kind of thing. Um, mm. Oh, they're not prepared. And, and even with, with, um, with Putin and this push, the post-communist push to have this aggressive, you know, what these strongmen do is they, they innovate and, and they build on all kinds of things, but they also innovate in their communication. And so this, in, in Putin's case, <clears throat> also this aggressive kind of commodification of that, of the leader and his body. And this was very, very strong starting from the early 2000s. At the same time, he was wresting um, big media outlets out of control of the oligarchs and he was putting, so it all goes together. The, the presentation, the, the building of the personality Yeah, I mean, in Russia, it's even worse because uh, luckily we, we didn't see that. But I think had Trump stayed in power, they actually have, you know, in schools, like they forced the youth to be brainwashed. I mean, and it's like this particular brainwashing of hatred of external enemies, loyalty to the figure, you know, who's in power. I mean, to the state, to your motherland. And you have people even to this day, even we're seeing, you know, with all everything happening, how my view is Putin is trying to reinstitute the Soviet Union. But you see every like this rhetoric of like, we need to be loyal to our motherland. We need to do everything to protect Russia. We need to, you know, basically it's this sick, blinding loyalty where you just don't see anything else besides what you're brainwashed with. And they start very early there. Like as like uh, toddlers start getting brainwashed. Yeah, there's there's something that is coming out of this um, sort of you, uh, Olga, mentioning the Soviet Union and also with uh, Ruth going back. And it's sort of like this appropriation, right, in some way of memory, which they take over and they try to change history, basically. Can you comment on that? Can you comment on that? Yeah, one of the, um, you know, when you're writing a book, sometimes you have these insights that you get very excited by and, and you think, okay, this is interesting, but is it really going to hold up to my case studies, etc. And so what, what I hit upon is that um, these strongman figures, they channel different time frames. One is utopia, where they say, I'm going to make the nation better. I'm going to modernize. I'm the savior. So Putin did this, and he's the doer. Um, and that's where again the 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 pot, the the importance of the physical presentation of the leader. You know, he's dynamic. He's kinetic. All that. But at the same time, they harness nostalgia. And many of these guys uh, come out of situations where people feel insecure. There's been a lot of change in society. Maybe. Uh, racial equity, like we had with eight years of Obama, 
um, gender emancipation, or as in Russia, when Putin came in, you had a crisis of kind of uh, that affected men, that affected everybody, but there was like mass male suicides, alcoholism from the 90s. And so Putin came in and, and you know, it was very much a contrast to Yeltsin. And, but the nostalgia is helping to make, to, to appeal to the people who want national pride to be restored. So everybody has, this was what was interesting. I went through my list and everybody had a version of this. So Mussolini had the Roman empire. Okay, that's, you know, and, they, and, they, and it translates into policy. It's not just an idea. So he had excavations and then he invaded, you know, he, he, he strengthened control over Libya where there are Roman ruins, all of that. Erdogan today has the Ottoman empire and it's like a big cultural thing, this neo-Ottomanism. And what does Putin have? It's like, you know, some connection with Imperial Russia, but it is a will to restore a version of the Soviet Union with the spheres of influence and the client states. And that way there's like a buffer and they feel safe, but there's this grandeur. And even Franco in Spain, you know, all they had was a bit of Spanish Morocco, but he clung to that. And so this wow. idea at a time when people like often men uh, and, and women too, but there's a, a nervousness about losing traditions because of progress. They, or, or there's been a recent disaster in the post-communist sense. They make people feel, make the, make the nation great again, make you feel good about being a, then slot in a Turk, an American, a Russian. And this, this utopia and nostalgia together is incredibly potent. And so you see even in Putin uh, and, and Trump, and this is where the fact that they come in and they're very skilled at communication. So Putin caters to this, like his yearly calendars, where there's a Putin for everyone. There's a modern Putin. There's a Putin with wild animals. There's a Putin in church. There's a Putin on a boat. And so the same was Mussolini. And so Mussolini did exactly the same thing. There was peasant Mussolini. There was aviator Mussolini. So everyone can see the Mussolini and the Putin that they want. And this is this. And then it translates into what we're going through now. It translates into forms of, of aggression and imperialism. In the case of Germany, you know, where <clears throat> there's a reason people are thinking, oh, there are these parallels with Munich and Hitler and this kind of drive to make the nation great through expansion. And Ruth touched on something very, very, very important. Despite so much evidence available, these autocrats will rewrite history. We saw it with Trump. He will say something one day, and then he will come and look you in the face, in the camera, and say, that is fake news. Uh, Putin signs decree, signed numerous decrees of rewriting the history of the Soviet Union and their role in World War II. And if you even mention... That, you know, that uh, Russia, uh, well, Soviet Union collaborated with Nazis. That is a crime. You cannot say that. And that means you are against your state. You are trying to, you know, put down Stalin. And basically they have turned anyone who attempts to actually show the real truth as an enemy. And we saw this with this horrific, horrific um 
closing and persecution of Memorial, who was collecting crimes by, uh, you know, the Soviet Union going back to Stalin days and forward. And they were named the enemy of the state. You know, when, when Putin started putting statue, allowing statues of Stalin to be erected, and I thought, oh, no, that's really bad. And it has to be the great patriotic Stalin, not the mass murder Stalin. And so, uh, you know, Yuri Dmitriev, who is a historian who worked associated with Memorial, who worked on the mass, was there's a lot of interesting um, work around the world going on also in Spain to about mass graves and exhuming bodies and finding out who the victims were, who were often anonymous. And so he was sent to prison and, and with a trumped up charge, and it's just been extended. And yet now we see, look what's going on now, there are these uh, accusations to justify the invasion of Ukraine, that there are mass graves, that the Ukrainians are the mass murderers. So yeah. it all works together. Yeah. Um, you have to, as a historian, I, I keep track of you know, persecutions of historians. And the same thing in Poland. Poland, it's, if you're a, a Polish historian and you work on Polish collaboration with the Holocaust, you you are harassed mm -hmm. but with lawsuits. You're, you're potentially going to be jailed. It's very difficult. Um, but it's very important to always make these links with the suppression of the memory of Stalin's mass graves. So right now you can see Ukrainians as the ones who um, are creating the mass, as the mass murderers. And thus, as Russians, we have the right to vindicate this awful wrong. To do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of, a lot is coming out right now. Yeah. Uh, even in the past few hours. You know, yeah. On what has happened. This is the talking I point. I ask you. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is, what are some of your thoughts on Ukraine? what's going on there um yeah what what is what are some of your thoughts on ukraine and what's going on there i mean i i totally agree you know i know olga's been very strong it's it the nato thing is it, it never it was never really mattered i think no. um it's just a, kind of a smoke screen and, you know, uh, when the, I think we, we've discussed this in private before, when the Biden-Putin summit happened in June, I was totally against this. And I thought this was a, actually a very bad idea. <laughs> and I predicted that it would make Putin more reckless. Now, I am not, uh, I'm not a Russia expert. I am not a Ukraine expert, but I'm an autocrat expert. And so when I realized, you know, when you bring in Putin and Biden said, we want a stable and predictable relationship. That's what he said at the time. And I'm not trying to blame Biden. I'm just saying, because this is a democratic frame that you use diplomacy. You have these nice and, and they sat there together, equals yeah. with the globe between them in Geneva. And I thought, uh oh, because just the fact of having him sit there as an equal is going to spark a desire for dominance. Plus, he always intended to keep, you know, they don't, there's no master plan in that, but they, they, it creates an opportunity to want to prove that you're more reckless. Also, Putin likely saw Biden as weak 
for even having the summit because they're not interested in diplomacy. And uh, I wrote an op-ed for MSNBC on this recently that, you know, people like Putin, they don't, they don't negotiate. They don't do diplomacy. What they do is create crises and then they exploit the crisis to get concessions or, or to new, to normalize situations of that are horrible that they already created like Crimea. And so right now there's a lot of like information warfare lies about this. So there was in the last days we heard, oh, the Russians are withdrawing troops from Crimea. So for the naive, they think, oh, well, look, they're like, they're being nice. They're doing something. Well, where are, the, where are they going? They're going to Ukraine, right? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. so the, it's, it's unfortunate. The only thing that would have worked is massive uh, hits on their money, on the oligarchs' money, and you know, and and blocking Nord Stream two. The things that really Putin cares about are money, and power, and and we we needed to um, strike at him. Instead of having the summit, they needed to do those things instead. And if they'd done those things very aggressively, it's less likely that we'd be having this crisis right now. Although because of what we said before, I think that some um, attempt to expand in Ukraine was not inevitable, but kind of, because this, and the more Putin, um, he's getting older. There's a lot of opposition in Russia, especially young people. And you get, and he doesn't have a successor. He can't psychologically have a successor. So the way that autocrats are, they start doing these, um, grandiose things to kind of um, save themselves and they have to feel safe. And so aggression, a lot of them do these things in the later part of their, their rule. So I think it, it's a long answer, but um, it, it was, it was going to be coming. It was going to come. Yeah, I am with Ruth on that. The summit should have never happened because Russia uses sit downs, one, to show weakness, two, to as intelligence operations to exploit, you know, any kind of frictions in allies and, and, you know, and to kind of probe. So, I mean, they have a multi thing. Ruth touched upon something very, very important that I wanted to follow up, and that is with statues. We talked a lot, you know, you mentioned the statues, and... It is interesting because, you know, obviously you see in Russia, there are so many statues of Lenin, of Stalin. And then we saw this trend popping over with Trump. And at all his rallies, like they literally created a godlike figure with golden statues of him. And, you know, and like, like he is the chosen one. And this is what they actually said, that he is the chosen one. How did he manage to do that? And why is it so important to get people into that mind frame that they just like put their whole life, their last dollar? I mean, you have elderly people emptying out their their retirement money in order to support this movement and a con. A con. He's a con. I mean. So, the, you know, this was like, again, this was where Trump started building this cult and he had a lot to go on you know uh he already had a kind of um the, the press already had a special relationship with him and he was considered glamorous because he had the best women 
supposedly now we you know finally coming out that it doesn't have any money but uh was thought to have a lot of money and but but creating a personality cult is very important um because these guys know they're corrupt and they have to have protection they need immunity from prosecution they need people to believe that they are the chosen one and what better way to get religious institutions on board to legitimize you and so this has happened. Putin has the Russian Orthodox Church, and he gives them all these goodies, and he restores churches. And so here, it, it's 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 totally extraordinary that I'll never get over this. That the same autocratic dynamics happened in the states while we were still a functioning democracy, and you see, and people didn't quote half. There wasn't. It's not like in a real old-fashioned dictatorship. If you didn't do certain things and worship the cult publicly. There were there were consequences like you could go to jail if you made one wrong joke in fascist Italy and someone heard you. But here we didn't have that. Yeah. So it, it kind of isolates the psychological mechanisms of the leader follower relationship. So Trump checked all the boxes. So he had to be invincible. And so that's why he intimidated people and the loyalty quotient. And and it so so when you get millions of people to bond with you and believe you have a destiny and you're going to bring the nation to greatness, they believe, it, they believe anything you say. Once they have that bond with you, they, I think I say in the book, they believe him because they believe in him. And so for that to, to work, you have to be a special figure. So you're, on the one hand, you're the everyman, you're relatable. And that's why, you know, like, Putinisms in Russia, this crude humor, like they seem very down to earth, but it's very important that they're also the Superman. They're touched by God. It depends on the context, right? Uh, but Gaddafi and Mobutu, all of them have this thing. Uh, even Mussolini, who hated the church, he was an atheist. He was, you know, seen as a special figure. Um, the body is special. You want to be near them. And so Trump had all of that. And, and so it they they surround themselves with these legitimators, these enablers, and the the religious yeah, connection is very powerful, because um, you you are and it works with um, religious cultures that are already authoritarian, like in our country evangelicals and Orthodox Jews, um, and so so there's very practical reasons that these guys have yeah that these and Opus Dei you know a lot this is so scary. I yes. did not expect to find this because I knew yeah. Opus yeah. Dei was, you know, enabling Franco in Spain, Pinochet in Chile. And then I started poking and the Trump administration in the inner circle, a lot of people connected, you know, directly or indirectly to Opus Dei in, in the like William Barr, Larry Kudrow, yeah. Pat Cipollone, White yeah. House lawyer. So there's through lines um, and actions that keep repeating. And the latest example was tr is Trump's America. Interesting fact on Opus Day, because I did such a deep dive um, on it, that Hansen, who uh, was selling secrets to GRU and KGB, was Opus Day, and he actually worked under Bill Barr in the early 90s. Yeah, the, the pub, I think the public is not aware of this. Um, and it was in Berlusconi's, um, it, it, Monique, you know, like, you know, Berlusconi was very economical because he had Marcello Delutri, who had two roles. He was the head of yes. this big ag ag advertising uh, conglomerate, 
But he was Opus Dei, but he was also the connection to the mafia. Um, so he, he did a lot of things. But they all have this, these, um, these right-hand men, uh, various of them, who connect to very important criminal and religious constituencies. It's almost like they're a bridge into that shadow world, you know, that we don't see that's there. But it's a, it's a world, I mean, we use this in Italy a lot, right? We have, um, especially in certain, there's a whole shadow world, people who are operating uh, outside of the rules, right? Outside of the legal framework that we have in institutions, uh, in the church, for example, as we're talking about Opus Dei, um, all sorts of, we call them mafia figures, but these are Ill illicit, okay, organizations, illegal organizations and they function like a state. This is what a lot of people don't understand is that they have enforcers, they've got enablers, but they've also got leaders as well in all of these, you no know, different kinds of groups. Uh, Ruth, I wanted to ask you about the enforcers, you know, of let's say the new GOP. Let's not call them new. I don't know what, it, what you would, I, I, I don't want to use any expellatives. So <laughs> let's just talk about the GOP for a moment. Who is enforcing the line in the GOP now, today? You know, this, this is like the, the story of the, it's a story of the American century. It's a huge story. How Trump imposed, um, because the GOP was ready for it, uh, a, an authoritarian party dynamic onto the GOP. And what I mean by that is converting, so Trump is what I call a personalist ruler, and so is Putin. And this is when uh, the, 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 it, one individual has outside pow uh, power and influence, even over uh, the executive too. But they also, their personal needs, including private financial needs, legal needs, come to influence policy. And they surround themselves with, in, in Russia, it's oligarchs, or it's just inner circles and families usually there are people from the old days, like Putin as a St. Petersburg people, um, people who can be trusted. But the party has to fit into this. And so the party becomes a personal tool of the leader. And so it's very, I have like a little, you know, little list that I get out and I say, oh, this just happened now where the, the Republican Party is paying Trump's personal legal expenses. Check. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the enablers and enforcers, any the loyalty quotients that an authoritarian imposes, that it, you're with me or you're against me. And as you saw with Mike Pence, you can have years of faithful poker-faced yes master service. And if you do one wrong thing with an authoritarian, it doesn't count. All your years are gone. It's what, what are you doing for me today? It's the mafia boss mentality. So, so all the party has to be constantly, it's constantly on trial. It's constantly uh, being tested, right? And, and, and then you also, though, need the big, one of the biggest enforcers is Tucker Carlson, because now there's a party line. And what happened is January 6th, because it's a criminal um, I want to write about this. It's very, it's very interesting. It was a criminal enterprise, 
that radicalized the party further into a self-protective mode and a Trump protective mode. And so you saw that people who voted to impeach Trump right after January uh, 6th uh, had to buy body armor, Republicans. You couldn't have any internal dissent. So it was already going this direction. But January 6th made it all much more urgent for Trump and the, the elites to protect themselves. So now there really truly is a party line. And so it was very interesting when Ted Cruz um, said that January 6th, you know, I think he called it a terrorist operation. And he had to be hauled in by Tucker Carlson and humiliated on television. And what this tells us from an authoritarian studies point of view is, you know, Ted Cruz is a senator. He's not just like a new person who arrived, but he has no status in, he has no status because he transgressed. And Tucker Carlson um, humiliating him and he kept going and going and you could see kind of like the dismay in Cruz's eyes. I don't like Cruz, but so I'm saying this like dispassionately. Um, because he didn't expect to be treated with such ridicule. But that's when you're in an authoritarian thing, the enforcers have the power. And if you transgress, you're nobody. Like with Pence, like who would have thought that the vice president of the United States would be running for his life, pursued by people who wanted to hang him from inside his own party? That the only frame for this is like places like Saddam Hussein's Iraq. No, that's where we are. Yeah. Or Putin, where you fall out the window. Yeah. Yeah, no, in Russia, we always um have people <laughs> falling out windows or, you know, we just had a few. One went for an ATV ride and he never came back. Another one, another one, uh, I hate call it, uh, died from a gunshot wound. But the whole article stated that, you know, he died and that um, uh, the police saw no criminal, you know. Uh, yeah, but, and I'm thinking, and I'm thinking he died from a heart attack. And then the last line, oh, yes, he shot himself. And I'm, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm like, okay, here I'm thinking he died from natural causes. And no, he shot himself. Um, we have media finally. Who caught on? Actually, two two parts I want to ask on this. One, and you and I have discussed this before, the role of the media. They are so quick to jump on headlines. We saw this actually with Ukraine. I mean, I uh, you know I feel like I spend half of my time online correcting media talking points as much as I do actually putting information. So yesterday when Putin announced, oh yeah, well, not Putin himself, the Kremlin announced that, you know, they're withdrawing forces. They put out a video. I woke up breaking news. Russia's withdrawing. They were so quick to jump the gun without actually looking to see it positions and whatnot. So one, we have a problem with media where they need to get the information out first, like it's part of their business model. On the other hand, we have this problem, which I think is a big problem of <coughs> how they report things. And you and I have discussed this, that over the past several years, 
they finally, I think it took after January 6th for them to get comfortable saying authoritarian. Before that, they would never say authoritarian. They wouldn't say, like, they did not want to address anything. And the people who actually were saying this is what's happening were kind of seen as, like, you know, like, out there. Like, you know, like, we're a little hyperbolic, hysterical. Now they're getting comfortable with it. How does media go forward? Because it seems they don't have the experience of how autocracies work. They don't understand, you know, they don't have that comparison that they can make and say, oh, gee, these are the tactics being used in Turkey or Russia or Iran. So they kind of take it more of an innocent way and they play the both sides which is very dangerous because in this case there is no both sides of them. How, how do we correct this? What do we do? At this point, also educate journalists who, um, and it's interesting because there are some journalists who um, had covered foreign autocracies or civil wars, but there's been, mm-hmm. and it's less after January 6th, as you said, but there's been a difficulty in, in imagining that this could happen in America. And even if, for example, we are hearing a little more about the Iraq war, that was the latest experience of, but that was something that Americans did. This is a foreign conflict. And so there is this way in which sometimes the, the, the press, like citizen, every citizen would like this to be, nobody wants this war, it's gonna be horrible. And so if there's a glimmer of hope, they're inclined to take it, but they're not, realizing that this is just part of an information warfare thing. And and so also, if you have pressure, and this is not excusing them, if you have pressure to get deadlines and get content out, it's hard to, it's hard to orient yourself. And the purpose of information warfare is to confuse you. Is, and so there's all kinds of false things and contradictory things, and the purpose is to make it, to throw people off the scent and then when something big happens, there's less probing um, because people were not prepared. And I think um, the, the learning curve, let's put it that way, of the press is, is too slow when you're dealing with the masters like the Kremlin or even, and Trump too, Trump subjected. Uh, we haven't even dealt with the onslaught of propaganda and information warfare that we've had since 2015. It's, it's just, as you said, it's taken a long time. Um, and also that's because the press is always on the defensive now. They're like, they're getting threats all the time, individual journalists too. So that's part of, that's also part of the, it's information warfare for a reason, it's warfare. And so threatening and intimidating, and, and it's the same even with like individual, like, you know, commentators, even someone like me, if you get, some people will say, well, it's not worth doing this because I'm tired of getting hate mails and tired of having stalkers and this and that. And, and so it trickles down even to, you know, s- small individual players who are trying to shed light um, on how this is working. And how do we go forward, like, as far as, because, I mean, you are sounding the alarm that our democracy is backsliding if we, you know, we don't know where we're going to be in two years, forget, you know, how do we go forward that people understand what is at stake? And 
and over the last years, you know, now we see, I think maybe people are understanding why during the Trump administration, there was like, there are plenty of reasons. I'm not a fan of China in any way. They're a horrible authoritarian state. And in fact, they just did this nice Xi and Putin thing that's inevitable. But the directing um, American hatred to China was a way to direct it away from Russia. Um, And so it's a very difficult situation. And the remedy is to somehow let Americans know what they risk losing. That, uh, that, this, that they, and getting them to turn out to vote in record numbers. 80 million people still didn't vote in 2020, even though Joe Biden got a record number of votes. So it was 80 million or so voted for him, but another 80 million didn't vote. And that's shocking. And people have, from, from our point of view, we, you know, people have lost their lives around the world for the right to vote. And so that's one thing we can do. But that depends also on the media. So we go back to the importance of getting through to them, too. Yeah, yeah. And to be able to put all of this, let's say, uh, to, to frame it properly, because otherwise, no, people are, the framing is so, is, is fundamental, you know, and in fact, as Olga was saying, you know, you sit on Twitter and you're like, no, 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 you know, these are not, uh, you know, Ukrainian separatists. Can we take that away, please? And call things the way they're supposed to be called, what they are in reality. Yeah. And also, um, you know, the thing what the media didn't understand like 2017 and again i am you know i want the media to improve because they are are one of the lifelines to save us you know and i really want them to understand you know what's happening and put it into proper framing and we saw even in 2017 and 2018 every time trump said something you know that was outrageous you know, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, no, he wouldn't do that. No, he's just joking. And they kind of made light of the matter and didn't realize that the chaos he was causing, it wasn't just chaos. It was strategic chaos. It was to wear us down, to break us down and to confuse us. And, you know, like these were an isolated incidents of, oh, you know, He's joking. I mean, he literally told us everything from 2015 to now of where we're going to go. He said it, but nobody listened. They're like, no, he wouldn't say that. No, he wouldn't do that. He's just, you know, flapping his mouth. Meanwhile, then it happens, you know. All right. So last question. Do you think um, the GOP can be saved? And if so, how do we support the members who are actually I do not want the country to go into authoritarian, you know, hell and actually do want a functioning democracy. How do we provide support for, you know, Republican like members who are silent or scared and, you know, but don't want to see the country going in the direction they are going? And do you even see any hope for the Republican Party right now? I have that hope because you need an alternate leader to come forth who's more moderate and give, um, and give a dynamism to the people. Because what you see in the history of autocracy is that people seem to be oriented one way, but as soon as somebody, there's thing, a thing called elite defection that happens if they think rulers are going down, then they very quickly, because they're transactional too, 
if they had another center of gravity, they, they, there might be movement in this way, but Trump, the thing about the authoritarian discipline on the party is that nobody can emerge. So you have people like DeSantis who are trying, um, he's equal, but he's equally, he's making Florida into a little autocracy. So he's not the answer. So it could be that they have to go through this phase and, and they will wreak so much destruction on America that perhaps that is what will be needed to rebirth something else out of this party. Because you can't have a third party. We're very, we're very, uh, it, it's a problem that we don't have multiple parties like other countries because there there's much more flexibility. You can band together and form an opposite like what's going on in Hungary is going on in Serbia. We can't do that. So that's a structural problem that we have that other countries don't have. So I don't right now, as long as Trump has his iron grip, I don't see um, that future. If Trump gets prosecuted, prosecution's the answer. Uh, lock him up. <laughs> and and, yeah, and then that creates a space. That creates a space for something new to happen in the party, but we're not there yet. And I want to finish this off on a really, really positive note. And you're going to tell us, Ruth, why you called your Substack Lucid, which is like an amazing, amazing no, uh, title for, for, your, for your publication. Tell us. Um, well, it relates very much to also the work that you're doing so, so wonderfully. I... I I wanted something to do with light, um, with uh, light versus darkness, but also lucid means that you're clear-sighted, you're clear-eyed. And there, and so it's about defeating the fog of disinformation, the fog of hatred, and, and also being able to, we talk about self-care sometimes and stepping back and being able to um, keep your own counsel and also be in a good space to see what's happening clearly around us. Hey everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben Brett, and Jordi Micellis of Midas Media with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.